gives John 3.16 its weight and its power. You see, if you don't continue to read and see the full explanation of what Jesus meant when he said these very words, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, this illustration that Jesus uses in all of verses 16 to 21 is that explanation. But I want you to notice when I now read verses 1 to 21, I want you to pay attention to certain recurring words or phrases. Notice words like lifted up or whoever believes. Watch for these words, eternal life. Watch for the contrast of who doesn't believe. And then there are two particular words that come up a lot in our passage, which are the word perish. And then finally, the word that makes everyone's spine shiver today in 2017, the word judgment. So let's look at John chapter 3. I want to just look at 17 to 21, but to give you the context so you can feel how we get there, I want to read verses 1 to 21, where John the Apostle describes an event where a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus, notice, by night. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, notice that's a capital S, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit, capital S, is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, and so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I love this, the raw honesty of Nicodemus. In verse 9, he says to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, then how, Nicodemus, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Notice how Jesus defines himself, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now feel the shift. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. 
the light has come into the world and people love the, the darkness rather than the light. And here's why. Because their works were evil. Now it should get explanation. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. But thanks be to God that the passage ends. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read verses 16 to 21, specifically verses 17 to 21, they almost have, if you will, a kind of a courtroom feel to it, doesn't it? There's this kind of courtroom dynamic. But, but let me ask you this as a way to engage you into the sermon this morning. How would you, or how, what or how, would you respond if someone asked you, if someone came up to you today, tomorrow, this week, and said, hey, are you saved? Are you saved? How would you respond to that? What would you say to that? And I mean, how would you think others, if you were to go that, because many of you in here are church people and you know this language, you know these expressions, but let's say you walk up to a, a friend, an acquaintance that's not been around church, they haven't read the Bible much, they don't really know these things, and you walk up to them tomorrow morning at the water cooler as you're getting your Tims and everything, and you say, hey, listen, man, woman, are you saved? Are you saved? What do you think their response is going to be? I think it might very well be, saved from what? Why are you asking me this? That's a bit of an odd question. And I think that's a fair response. I mean, let's be honest. If you don't know you need saving, or from what you need saving, how would you respond? But look at verse 16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him, notice this, should not perish. Now, we don't talk about that word a lot in John 3.16, but if the writer would tell us that we should not perish, then it must mean that we're perishing. That must be what it means. You see, that's why Jesus used that Moses illustration. In fact, it's a means to which as we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and we're reminded of Adam and Eve when God told them, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in that day you will surely die, or that's the same word as perish. And we learn it's worse than physical death. It's actually spiritual, eternal death. It's separation from God, our Father, Creator. In fact, you go from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 and 19. And the Revelation explains what it means to perish because perish doesn't mean to cease to exist. Perish means, according to the Bible, to be tormented day and night forever. So in other words, being saved from perishing must be important it must be and so i just want to give you five ways to remember 17 18 19 20 and 21 verse 17 is this god's loving motivation redemption we're looking at the anatomy of the gospel so verse 17 is we find out about god's loving motivation which is redemption you see this verse verse 17 is the declaration of verse 16 in other words, why Jesus came. Here you see the purpose of God's love spoken about in John 3.16. And that's important for us not to miss. 
Because John, the apostle, is informing us, God so loved the world. The amazing love of Jesus was amazing because it comes from the God of the universe. If you remember, he's a holy loving God, an unchangeable loving God, an all-knowing loving God, an all-powerful loving God, an all-present, sovereign, infinite loving God. And John 3.16 tells us that God loves us, but verse 17 tells us what this giving love was going to do. Paul explains it, I think, really well in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians 4, 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons or daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, are there two more beautiful words in the Bible than when you know that when you believe in Jesus, you have the right to say, Abba, Father. But notice how it ends. So you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then an heir through God. So John chapter three, verse 17 says that Jesus, the son of man, the son of God, came into an already lost and condemned world. And don't miss this. All right, as commentator Richard Phillips says, God did not send Jesus to cause sinners to perish. Sinners were already going to perish without Jesus having to come and die. God lovingly sent his son to pay with his own blood the sin debt for all who believe. So Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. You see, Friends, Jesus didn't come into a neutral world. He didn't come in a neutral world where we were all neutral, and so he decided, well, I'll save some, and then I'll condemn others. No, you see, Jesus came into a lost world, a condemned world. That's the nature of the world. That's what we saw back in chapter 1, verse 9, right? The light was coming into the world, and they did not receive the light. And so there was the promise that God sent his son into the world to save. But we also notice from 17, 18, 19, that he didn't come and save all the world, because that's made perfectly clear in verses 18 to 21, right? But God's purpose in the mission of Jesus was to bring salvation to the world. And that's why... Later in John chapter 4, Jesus is called the Savior of the world. He's the Savior. J.C. Ryle, that Presbyterian preacher, said this, The meaning of the sentence in verse 17 evidently is that all the world might have a door of salvation opened through Christ. That salvation might be provided for all the world so that anyone in the world believing on Christ might be saved. In this view, it is like the expression of St. John. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He goes on to say, in verse 17, this verse, our Lord shows Nicodemus another heavenly thing. He shows him that the main object of Messiah coming into the world is not to judge men, but to die for them. Not to condemn, but to save. Man, what a Savior, amen? Okay, wake up. You see, you got to understand how conflicting this was in that first century for Nicodemus to hear this. This is why he says, how can these things be? The Jews of the first century really thought Messiah was coming to judge and to restore. 
You see, in the book of Daniel, Daniel talks about the ancient of days coming and destroying that statue, remember, and he was going to overrule things. The psalmist, David, said in Psalm 2 that when the Messiah comes, he would laugh at the derision of the world. And this is what tripped people up in the first century. You see, most Jews saw Rome as the enemy. They saw political oppression. They looked around them and they saw sickness and disease and they saw death and pain and they they saw the mankind was failing. And so where was Jesus the Messiah to come and take charge and make it all right? And so the Messiah says, I have come. And they missed what we don't see. You see, they didn't see it. I don't see it. You don't see it. We don't see it. That the problem is not political oppression The problem is not that we can't overcome sickness and disease. The problem is that our sinfulness needs to be taken care of. The problem is me, us. You see, God sent his son, according to verse 17, in the world, not to condemn what is already dying, but to save, to redeem, to restore, to heal, to do something radical and amazing. And when you see that, verses 18 and 19 starts to make sense. Because if that's God's loving motivation, redemption, point two in verse 18, God's loving expectation, which is a right response. See, John 3.16 says, God so loved. His motivation was redemption, but his expectation is you and I have to respond. And guys, I really have to tell you, I love God's word because I think John 3.18 is one of the most basic set of words to convey a thought you could ask from God. If John 3.16 says, I am the loving God who gives my son. And then verse 17, if you believe, you live. And if you don't, you're already condemned. Verse 18 tells us that God's offer is the offer. It's not one of many. You don't get to choose. God God sends him son and here's the offer and what happens is you accept or reject that offer. And if you accept it, you've got to accept it by faith. In Christ, not yourself. In to trust Christ means trusting what he says. Now think that through. Think about what Jesus talks about in the Bible. Let's bring it out of the abstract and religious talk. Really, let's bring it down into 2017. You see, in the Bible, Jesus talks about himself. Already in our passage, he said, I am the son of man. I am the son of God. He talks about us. He talks about the fact that we're sinners, that we need a savior. He talks about Satan. He talks about the world. And then he gets it very specific. Jesus doesn't talk in in vagaries. He talks about things like sex, sexual identity, money, power he talks about marriage he defines it he talks about what it should be he talks about family and what makes a family he talks about men and what makes a man a man and what makes a man manly he talks about women and what makes a woman a woman and what makes a woman womanly or feminine he talks about government he talks about life if you read the bible you'll read everything about ethics and integrity And you see, we read this, and some of us in this room even know about these things by God's word, no less. But here's the question, according to verse 18. Do we trust Jesus with his assessment of us? And do we trust Jesus with what will truly make us happy? Or are we the ones deciding, this makes me happy? 
Jesus even addresses things like emotions and self-image or the catch word of today, self-esteem. Jesus tells us how to look at life. Jesus explains sickness and fairness and what we deserve. Every day and each moment of every day, someone like you and me make a decision to respond to God, to his son and to the Holy Spirit. We decide, will I trust and obey or will I acknowledge? Yep, thank you, Jesus, for your opinion. And then I ignore and go live it my way. I mean, let's, let's call a spade a spade. I mean, that's the truth, isn't it? That's what we're doing as humans. And so at the end of verse 18, it's the little awkward part. Look at verse 18 again, right? He says in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. We love that part. But the end of verse 18 says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that often this particular passage and this particular end of this verse is the awkward part, and we do like little young kids, right? When we ever face something that's really scary to us, or or our parents are telling us that we're going to be punished, or they're warning us, or something's going to happen on television and you don't want to know it. Have you ever seen a kid go, la, 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 la? Like, they figure if they can cover their ears and close their eyes and go, la, 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 that means whatever's happening is not happening. Have you ever seen a kid do that? That's right, you have. I've done it. I've done it not too long ago. All right? I don't like those whodunit type shows and stuff where the music builds and people jump out and all. And I just, la, 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 la. Well, this is what we do when we come to the awkward bits of the Bible all too often. We simply ignore the hard bits and focus on the good bits. But listen, because I love you and because God loves you, you got to deal with the hard stuff in order for the good stuff to actually be good. You see, God loved and gave. Why? Because we're perishing. We're perishing. And we've got a need to be saved. Saved from our sinfulness. If you want a modern illustration of this, as we live here in Newfoundland, probably the greatest shipping tragedy that's been sung about and movies have been made about and books written about and television theories made about is not far off our coast was the sinking of the Titanic. And what made the Titanic one of the great tragedies of all time was one, because so many could have been saved and weren't. So many more people could have gotten in lifeboats, but they didn't. And secondly, so many wouldn't believe that they needed saving. They couldn't believe that that boat would sink. And so even though the alarms were sounding and people were telling them to go, they didn't believe it. They said, this is the Titanic. And so John chapter 3.18 yells out, how tragic to reject and deny or play ignorant of the reality of us needing a Savior. And then when we get, get his offer to actually reject it. That's the tragedy. That's that awkward half of the last part of verse 18, but then go to the first part. Because don't ever lose sight of the promise of eternal life. He who believes is not condemned. Eternal life is explained in Scripture. I would challenge you to go through the Bible and actually define eternal life. Don't just go by the old Southern Gospel songs, you know, I got a mansion just over the hilltop and all. That makes it sound all hokey pokey. Think about what eternal life is. Eternal life in Scripture is forgiveness. It's redemption. But you know what eternal life is? It's freedom. And eternal life is both quantitative and qualitative. 
Eternal life obviously speaks of eternity, right? I mean, that's what it means. Believers will live. In John chapter 11, I can't wait to get this to passage of, of, of Lazarus when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then what a radical statement. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you see that? He says, whoever me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's, a, that's an oxymoron. And then he, at the end of it, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. But he just said, but whoever dies will live. This is eternal life. But eternal life affects us in the here and now too. And this is my burden for every one of you in this room and downstairs who are watching this that claims to be a Christian. You see, eternal life energizes you and comforts you. It gives you perspective on life's circumstances in light of eternally, emotionally, and mentally uplifting. One of my favorite things I found this week, a Puritan book was titled, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. (laughs) And I wondered to myself, how many of us have Christians that we would say, the life of God in the soul of mine? But here is one poet said of another Puritan, Richard Sibbs, and this is what he said. Of this blessed man, let this just praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Is that true of us as Christians? When you really know and have eternal life, real eternal life, that someone would say to us, not after we've died, but while we live, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. See, what I don't understand, I don't mean that we walk around and we pretend like we don't have pain or we pretend like we don't have difficult uh, circumstances in life or that we don't have challenges in our marriage or with our family or with our jobs or, or with, with uh, extended family and siblings or with your parents. But the idea that now I have eternal life and so I've got perspective on this. Remember that hymn, Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary. Can we show those pictures uh, do you have those, Dave? Can I show those? Here, here's one. This is the most book that most people don't know John Bunyan wrote. Most of you know Pilgrim's Progress, which I'll show you in a second. But this is a book, and that, may I just put a plug in here for all of you that are parents, for all of you that are university students and younger, down to your, say, 12 or 13 years old. Parents, buy this book for your kids, and young people, buy this book. If I could ever get two people to read two books, this one here is called The Holy War, and this is all about the city of called um, Mansoul. As you'll, you'll know that. And, and, and Mansoul, it's all about the fight for Mansoul, and it's an allegory. And the other book, of course, let's show them the other picture, which is Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, if you are under the age of 30, you need to buy this like today and read Pilgrim's Progress. And then you need to read The Holy War. And parents, do your kids a favor and buy these books for your kids, all right? But here is Christian, right? That's his name, Christian. And in in Paul Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he talks about this man named Evangelist. An evangelist comes to Christian and he says, fly from the wrath of calm. He goes, you're perishing. You need to be saved. And so Christian begins running according to John. And he's running and he says, life, life, eternal life. And his friends thought he was crazy. If you read it, they thought he was a lunatic. They just think that this, this is the same thing, isn't it, for Christians today? Have you ever had a friend try to stop you from being a Christian? Anybody? <laughs> yeah I've had many a person say Steve really dude you're way smarter than this y- you don't need this in your life 
right? And they run after him and reminding him of all that he's forsaking. But Christian, while he's running saying life, life, eternal life, he invites everybody to join him. And this is what he says in the book. He says, all which you shall forsake is not worthy to be compared with a little of that what I am seeking to enjoy. I seek an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, and it is laid up in heaven and safe there to be bestowed on them that diligently seek it. And the tragedy is all of his friends refused and went back, and Christian proceeded on in his faith. And you remember this illustration that Jesus gives Nicodemus as the Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. See, the gospel is like a doctor who tells us about the antidote to a poison we've ingested. But we've got to admit that we have poison in us, and we've got to trust that what is prescribed will work. This is the message of the gospel. Really, all Jesus is doing is filling out his illustration. See, believing in Jesus results in life. Not believing results in death. That's verse 18. Those, back if you go back to Numbers, where this illustration is taken from, this reality, and you look at the serpent, those who looked up on the serpent on this cross lived. Those who didn't died. It's that profound and that simple. Look upon the serpent, you lived. Not look upon the serpent, you die. But think of the beauty of the offer. Now, think of the lunacy of rejection. Which is why verse 19 in this middle of 17 to 21 is the verse that I think everybody wants to avoid. Because now we're back to the courtroom. But this time it's the courtroom of God. And if I was a little bit more creative and I had a little bit more time this week, I would have had the Perry Mason soundtrack play here now. Or maybe the, the soundtrack of Matlock, right? Some of you that are my age will remember that other courtroom drama, Jake and the Fat Man. Remember that one? How many remember Jake and the Fat Man? Anybody here? That, okay, yeah, there's some people. That was my favorite because I just love the title, Jake and the Fat Man. <laughs> I just love that. But most everybody in this room will know of Law and Order, right? Put your hands up, Law and Order. There you go. Watch. Look at all the hands. It's the longest running courtroom drama in television history. Over 20 years. And see, why do we love courtroom dramas? Why do we love it? Because we love the courtroom drama because that word drama is there, right? There's nerves involved. There's victims and defendants. There's things like justice and mercy. And then there's things that make us emotionally respond like injustice. And then there's the horrors and all that's on display when we think of court. And yet, let's be honest, amazingly for our infatuation with court and justice, you know what I have found about myself and other human beings? Is we love justice to be applied to someone other than us. We love it when everybody else gets justice. But if we're guilty, <laughs> then, you know, listen, I deserve a bit of mercy. But if someone wrongs me, justice, justice. And yet I find it amazingly fascinating that we would never think that God deserves justice. See, Jesus concludes his teaching to Nicodemus by pointing out that unbelief is both intentional and culpable. Those are legal terms. You see, Jesus came into the world to save those who believe, but he is nonetheless obliged to state the case for judgment. And this is the judgment, verse 19. And so the courtroom of heaven is all leaned in and wrapped attention. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. 
Now let's be honest, all right? Verse 19 goes against just about everything we hear in our news and culture today, doesn't it? Who ever gets excited to say, let's talk about judging each other? Nobody gets the warm and fuzzies when that comes up. Right? How many times have I heard on CNN and Fox News and ABC and CBC and CTV of all the news, especially with all of the fights going on in politics in our country, judge not lest you be judged. Everybody knows that verse. I think Matthew 7, 1 is getting right up there with John 3, 16. Right? God loves, judge not. Everybody does that. We love to quote Jesus from Matthew because that fits with our life view. But the problem is everybody stops reading after verse 1 of Matthew 7. Nobody reads the rest of the way. And very few of us, very few of us, yes, including those of you in this room, will ever spend a lot of time on John 3.19. Why? Because it cuts to the heart of who we really are deep down, doesn't it? And it's a view of God that makes us all very uncomfortable. And this is the judgment. Kevin DeYoung, who wrote the book, The Hole in Our Holiness, puts it so pointedly well. If we are not interested in Jesus, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we're just rejecting the church or religion or a bunch of stuff our parents taught taught you or taught us. We are, according to the Bible, rejecting the one to whom we owe our lives and through whom the universe came into existence. It's a serious thing to reject the living God. You have to understand that in a room like this and downstairs, you have to understand, I wish I could describe to you what it's like even as a preacher when you get into preaching these types of things. I can feel the tension. Everything gets super quiet. It's almost like everybody's afraid to breathe or move because you grip the seriousness of these words and it's just, it's just awkward. Because we have to admit, of all the things we can say about this world, of all the things the Bible says about humanity and this world, the Bible says the greatest offense, the unfathomable, unforgivable criminal act of humanity is how we have treated Jesus. Hence why verse 19 starts the way it does. And this is the judgment. The light, you could put it there. And Jesus has come into the world and people love darkness rather than Jesus because their works were evil. Now, you've got to understand the context of this because sometimes we don't, you, don't mis, you don't want you to misunderstand Jesus or the word because here it says, and this is the judgment. And yet in back in 17, it says the, that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. And when we get down into chapter five of John, Jesus says, and he, meaning God the Father, has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. In chapter 9, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, and those who do not see me, uh, so those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. But I love the way Andreas Kostenberger puts it. He says, The provision of salvation for all who believe implies judgment for those who do not believe. So while the purpose of Christ's coming was redemption, when his saving work is rejected, Judgment results. See, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. That's verse 17. It's already condemned. Hence why he needed to come, because we're perishing. Can you imagine rejecting the one who comes to rescue you? Put this in real life. What would you say to someone burning in a fire 
or drowning in the sea or that patient dying of cancer who would reject the one sent to save them. Go back to that great illustration in 13, 14, and 15. These people are dying because of their sin. They needed to be helped, and to be helped, they had to admit, I have a problem, and the problem is me, and I've got to look to the serpent that's up on that tree. I've got to look to the one who can save them. So can you imagine the pride and stubbornness to actually reject that offer? And plus, this helps us just a wee little bit. Because we now see clearly, not believing in the God-sent Son of God is to declare yourself condemned and God's not to blame, but rather you are or I am. So you, now you see the tension. Humans remain responsible. No one is compelled to believe. Unbelievers, people that don't believe, face the necessity of escaping an already existing condemnation. So you can't take credit for being saved, but you'll never blame God for not being saved. So God is completely justified, even loving to declare that we are judged by and in our unbelief. For heaven with sin or unbelief wouldn't be heaven or holy. Doesn't verse 19 sound eerily familiar to John chapter 1 verse 10? The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was often called, coined the phrase, he was the king's doctor. He said it like this, if you want to know what the world is like, look what it did to Jesus. He was the son of God. He had left the throne of heaven. He had come and humbled himself and he gave himself to healing people and to instructing them. He never did anyone any harm. He went about doing good. And what was the response of the world? It hated him. It persecuted him. It rejected him. It chose a murderer before him. It crucified him. It killed him. And there on the cross, he exposed the world for what it is. And he applies the past to us today by writing, the clever men of the world today are laughing at the cross. They're mocking it and they're jeering at it. They're making fun of the blood of Christ and they're trying to ridicule it. They're only doing what their prototypes did in the first century. That is what the world has always done to him. See, the judgment of God will be you've rejected the very one I sent to save you, God says. God lovingly says, I love you, and I didn't have to. God the Father says, I gave my most intimate and precious one to you, and you didn't, and I didn't need to, and I put my love into action to draw you unto myself, and I took your rejection, and I took your pride, and I took your self-sufficiency, I took all your mess, and I put it all on my son, and I offered you forgiveness and adoption. I offered to read you into my eternal will, and I promised to heal you and help you and be with you and protect you and provide for you and prepare a place for you. And look at the second half of verse 19 and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil notice those words their works were evil wow what do you do with a passage like this in the bible because this is harsh and it's confrontational and it's narrow-minded this is jesus being exclusive and daring to tell someone what is truth and what is not truth D.A. Carson says they were not willing to live by the truth. Notice this, they valued their pride more than their integrity, their prejustice more than their contrite faith. Worse, anyone in this camp hates the light and refuses to come to it for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And what that means is exposure, but shame and conviction. So now we're back to the cliches of life. 
Don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. There are none so blind as those who don't want to see. And I don't know about you, but I read this and I go, what? What? How? How is this possible? You see, verse 20 gives us God's holy understanding, which is man's sinful nature. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. I love the Bible. I'll never get tired of telling you that. I love the Bible. Because you know what? You'll discover yourself and you'll, you'll discover what truly makes a man's or a woman's heart beat. Psychiatry and psychology is wrapped up so well in the Bible. The human heart is here, is given to us. Romans chapter 1 will explain it even further. David said in Psalm 14, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. In keeping with our courtroom, think of the ways that we try to avoid condemnation. Think of the ways we do it. We run or we hide. There's these terms like failure to appear. We'll deny or we try to mount our defense. And this is why commercial church, trying to appeal to guilty sinners based on how they feel is never a good idea. We shouldn't be looking to the world going, what what are you seeking for and we'll give it to you because what does Matthew 16 say? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? See, we fail to realize that the problem with us and with the world is a moral one. Therefore, the worst thing we can do is encourage people, come and enjoy church without ever challenging their love for sin or our love for sin. Worldly entertainment in the church doesn't promote true and saving faith, but simply false and empty religion. Salvation requires God's supernatural work to change hearts. You must be born again. See, ultimately, we too are dealing within ourselves and those around us and those who are not giving up on their sin, but we want to act and come across like we're actually good. So friends, don't cherish your sin. It'll kill you. Do you love a particular sin? Does something just dog you? Here's how you know, because it'll keep you from God. It'll keep you from his word. It will keep you from his people. I grew up on this saying, sin will either drive you to God or keep you from him. That is universal. So what's happening in your life right now? But man, if this is where the sermon ended, this would like be the biggest like bomb I'd ever dropped on a, on a church, I think, in my life. But I love the fact that verse 21 says there's God's holy transformation. There's sanctification. That's a a big word that means God changes us. Take the time with this verse. Notice it says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. So in other words, whoever does what is true comes to Jesus. Why? So that it may clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see what Jesus is teaching? The one who's born again, the one who believes, the one who's not perishing anymore, the one who's saved or converted is not condemned. And this is made known in two very cool ways. Write this down, especially you younger people. Listen, here's what it means to be saved. You now have a Christ-changed life. You've got a Christ-changed life. We come to the light. That's John 1. Remember 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then you and I have fellowship with the Father. Do you remember that man born blind? Remember the man born blind and Jesus mixes the mud and touches his eyes and he can see and he's in the temple and everybody's asking him and he says, look, all I know is this. I once was blind and now I see. But can you imagine the the hilarity, the tragic hilarity, if a man who was blind and now can see says, okay, I'm going to leave now and I'm going to still live like a blind man. If now all of a sudden now he willfully closes his eyes and still feels around in the darkness. 
A man born blind who can now see doesn't do that. Now he never wants to shut his eyes. He wants to take everything in because his life has been changed. He's overwhelmed. Paul told the Galatians, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. You've been set free and changed. Richard Phillips says, the answer is that we come to the light. That's why Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, when your life has been changed, now now you don't have to go to God's word. You got to go to God's word because now you can see it. The Bible changes us by reshaping our attitudes and our behaviors. But secondly, not only do you have a Christ-changed life, but now you have a Christ-motivated life. And this is my favorite part. Because your life, a Christian life, is responding to Jesus' sacrifice, God's love and the Spirit's power. I now trust Jesus, so I listen to him, and I want to know him, and I believe what he says, what's right and what's wrong. Matthew 11, right? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But again, go back two verses. Jesus says, I am telling you this with authority. I am speaking to you with authority coupled with my sacrificial love and my perfect commitment and my awesome power and my unbreakable promise and my unfailing mercy and grace. How can we not love the love of God? And so here are the practical questions of application. And I hope they are resounding and I hope they are blunt for every one of us, me included. What is your response to the love of God? Do you realize how loved you are? Are you rejecting or accepting his love? Are you hiding in the shadows? Ashamed of your life? Trying to hide those things you've been trying to use to find happiness? Are you running to the light of God's love and finding freedom and getting your burden lifted? Debbie and I recently watched a documentary about this very young lady. I forget her name, but she was horribly abused by her mom. I mean, her mom just made her sick, kept her sick, forced her to have all these surgeries. She lived a lie and she lived in fear. Everybody thought she, was, she couldn't walk and they, they t- exploited all kinds of money uh, from people. But as she lived this life, then she realized as she got older that this wasn't right and she, she couldn't get out from the tyranny of her mother. And so she, she started living in fear and she started playing along, but then she developed this hidden life and she got this online romance going with someone and resentment grew and fear overcame logic. And she got this boyfriend that she hid away from her mother and found online to murder her mother and because of the circumstances she was granted some leniency although she did go to prison for 10 years but what amazed me about it was when she comes out and she's in the the striped suit and she's from prison handcuffs on her she comes out with the chains on her feet now her hair has grown out and she's walking and she actually looks beautiful from what she was but she sits down and she looks at the reporter and says are you okay and her face just lights up and she says I can finally be free and I can be honest and I was struck with the contradiction from a human perspective you would say but you're a prisoner And she would say, no, my life before was prison. Now I can be honest. You see, that's what Jesus does. He frees us from our own slavery. And so my second question is, do you own and agree with God's pronounced verdict on mankind, which includes me and you? Friends, listen to me. For all the talk of being judgmental in our world today, 
or the call really not to be judgmental. No matter how bad we now live in a culture that's a shame culture. If you stand for anything that contradicts with anybody else, now we just shame you. We just make you feel that you're subhuman. No matter all of the jokes about Jesus taking his name in vain, no matter how many countless human beings pass both judgment and opinion on him, Calvary Baptist Church and friends and visitors hear me, it will not be the world that judges Christ, but a holy God Savior who judges the world. That's just true. So God is holy. And our holy God has declared what is right and wrong, what is to believed and not believed. And you've got to believe this. But God is love and he acts lovingly. He tells you the truth because he loves you about yourself and about Satan who is called the father of lies. He tells you the truth about a world that tempts you and says, do this and you'll be happy and it never pays off. He tells you the truth about yourself. He tells you about all these things and he tells you how to live, not to reign on your parade, but to protect you from yourself. And so come to the light and you'll see it. In fact, I firmly believe this deep down that everybody knows this. And so what we do, again, we do this la, 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 la. We drown it out. We're easily distracted. We pretend and we cope. We put on happy faces. We drink or we get high or we run to fantasies and movies and try and keep ourselves busy. But the psalmist in Psalm 6 says, be still and know that I am God. Thirdly, tell me who you love. I laugh at this because I was telling Debbie about this last night and Steve was there. And the moment I said that this was one of my questions, Debbie went, oh. Not because I was going to make a fuss about my love for Debbie, but because this was a game we played as teenagers in our youth group. So you'd, get, you'd pick three or four people, make them leave, and then you'd sit them in a circle. All the teens would get around. And so the person would be sitting in this chair and the person would have to come in and they'd sit there and they'd go, I just have one thing to say to you. Tell me who you love. Now, the idea was if a smart person figured it out, they're supposed to go, who you love. But of course, teenagers, what would happen? They'd all get red-faced and they'd all look around and not want to make eye contact. But every single time we played it, some enthusiastic teenager would get the guts up and blurt out a name. And then everything went crazy. Because usually the person's name blurted out did not know that this person was in love with them. And we loved it. But then to play along, they'd always get like a, a youth worker or a parent volunteer to sit down. And all of us, we were like, oh. Because, you know, one day my parents were helping and my mom got put in the seat. And they said, you know, Mrs. Bray, tell me who you love. And mom smiled up and she looked at me in front of 60 of my teens. I love Stephen. <sighs> right? Don't say that in front of her. But we all groaned because we knew the question, the answer was obvious. Especially when husbands and wives, I love my husband, right? It was obvious. But can I ask you, is it obvious to the world that if you were sat down and somebody said, tell me who you love, people go, why ask that? Because we know what the answer is. They love Jesus. Or are people actually shocked and embarrassed when you say it? Because they were never expecting it. And finally, so how, how does our love of God change your way of life? Friends, I love you, but don't say you believe in Jesus and love him if it doesn't change you. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, <laughs> I've often been asked the question, are you a Christian? Or would the world know that you were a Christian? If we went back to court, would I be convicted of being a Christian? And I actually hated that. <laughs> 
And because I was raised around legalism, when I got into the pastorate, I chafed against that idea because I thought it was legalistic and it was putting undue pressure on people. But the older I get, the more I realize, wait a second, that's a fair question. In Acts chapter 13, it was not Christians that labeled themselves, the world did. The people in Antioch looked at a bunch of people that were followers of Christ and said, you know what, they're Christians, which means they're little Christs. The world labeled us. We didn't label ourselves. And now all we do is label ourselves. And the world is just confused. Because how do our life? So we, we sing this song, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. Exactly. Everybody knows that. All right, so let me, th- let me take it up a notch. Jesus loves me, this I know, for I am a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Jesus loves me, this I know, for I keep his commandments, John 14, 21 and 23. Jesus loves me, this I know, for I love my brothers and sisters, even the ones that are not easy to love. Jesus loves me, this I know, because we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, it's really easy to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, because that way you can transfer it to everybody else, but you're never responsible. But if the Bible tells you so, this is what the Bible tells you. So God's word challenges us to be honest. Is my claim to faith in Jesus an actual changing faith? That's the anatomy of the gospel. It's redemption. It's the right response. A verdict is required. Man's sinful nature. But the gospel changes us. All glory be to Christ. Do you know him? That's my king. Do you know him? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this glorious opportunity just to look into your word. And Father, the privilege that it is to be convicted. Lord, it is amazing to me how often we are distracted, how amazing it is to me that when we're slightly uncomfortable, we pull out our opinions Oh, God, that you would free us. May we see how the Son of God came for us. And Lord, now as we sing this closing song, Lord, this is not just to be circumspect in a service and to wrap it all up well and tie a little bow on it. Father God, Spirit of the living God, would you convict us and then change us and free us and help us to see our need. If there's someone in this room and they've discovered today that they're perishing, that they would come to you that they wouldn't leave without coming to someone and saying, I need to know Jesus. If there's Christians that are claiming to be Christians but flirting with the world, Christians who have been set free but now still living like a slave, oh, Father God, make the Bible so much bigger and more real. Make your love for us more amazing and life-changing and life-motivating. Oh, God, change us. Change me. In Christ's name. And all God's people said.